When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode number five of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I'm really glad you are joining me today, and I hope you are safe and well. So right now, we're kind of hunkered down for the winter, hoping that if we do it right, it helps us get back closer to normal. Hopefully it won't be too long before we're back out doing driving gigs, at least. In the meantime, I am so happy to have you all along. I know doing this is helping me get through this, and maybe in some way I'm helping you as well. Along for the ride today is Ben Kaufman of the Yonder Mountain String Band. I've known Ben and the band for almost 20 years now, and have had the honor to drum with them on many occasions, and can tell you from experience that they can jam with the best of them. Also here today is Jerry Saracini of the band Forgotten Space out of Dallas, Texas. Jerry is a fellow drummer who I go way, way back with, and doing this interview was a blast. Uh, Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment and ask you to check out our subscriber site at www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays and consider a monthly subscription for access to bonus content, including unedited interviews, outtakes, video features, links to related topics, some cool swag and other ways to further engage with me and support the podcast. The Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, branding and apparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead, and this week we're going to take a moment to honor Noah Lewis. Noah Lewis was born in Tennessee in 1891, and he learned to play the harmonica as a child. He became quite well-known, and in Memphis in the early 1900s, He met a banjoist named Gus Cannon, and they formed Cannon's Jug Stompers. Over the years, there were various other members of the Jug Stompers, but Lewis was always there, and he actually wrote most of the material. In 1928, they made their first recordings, and uh, these recordings had a big influence on the dead. They included Big Railroad Blues, Minglewood Blues, and then at a later recording, just a few days later, they recorded Viola Lee Blues. So we're talking about two songs that were pretty much in rotation throughout the Grateful Dead's career, and another one, Viola Lee, that was one of the biggest jam vehicles they had. 
Uh, in future episodes, we're going to dig a little deeper into these guys and play some more of their tunes. But for today, here is Noah Lewis and Cannon's Jug Stompers with the original recording of Big Railroad Blues. Now it's time for the Sarno Music Solutions Breakdown with Brad Sarno. Brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions. Producing the finest musical instrument audio gear, designed and hand-built in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003, and Blue Jade Audio, St. Louis's primary audio mastering service since 1999. Uh, today we're going to talk about the home guitar enthusiast. There's this whole subculture of folks out there who like to try and get the jerry tone and the proper equipment and play dead tunes at home purely for their personal enjoyment. It's actually a fascinating thing going on, and Brad knows quite a bit about it. So let's get right to it. Here is Brad Sarno. All right. Hey, Brad. How are you today? Doing well, Rob. Good, good, good. I'm glad to have you back, as always. Um, On our last episode, we talked about Jerry's tone and his equipment. You talked about the axes and the different amps and everything. Um. And I wanted to touch on this too. There's like quite a a community out there of hobbyists who uh, are way into the getting the Jerry tone and using the equipment. It's almost it's like its own subculture. And I know they come to you for some info and advice from time to time. Can you tell me a little bit what you know about that whole community? Um, yeah, man, it's it's gotten huge. It's um, and there's a lot of young blood these days. You know, for years we've had you know people in our who are now in our fifties, sixties, seventies who were, you know, big into it when it was happening. And, um, but man, in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, it has grown. And honestly, in the last year or two, it's just exploded. There's a a Grateful Dead musicians group on Facebook that's really become kind of a grand central station for the conversations. And um, boy, it's just such a great spectrum. There's so many, like you said, hobbyists, but there are a lot of pros, man. There are a lot of, a lot of people playing in dead bands or bands that are doing the music and a lot of enthusiasm for the sound and fidelity that they dig when they hear the dead. And so, uh, yeah, every day it's a pretty vibrant community and conversation. And, and they're all trying to get the, the right amps and the right settings on those amps to get the tone. And um, some of them are really getting it, aren't they? Oh yeah. Some really are, you know, like we joked about before, it's all in the hands, you know, the, the better right. player, through a simple amp is going to sound better than, um, wait, did I say that right? Yeah. The, <laughs> the better, the better hands are going to nail it, you know, versus no the guy, the, the amateur who has all the exact gear, you know? So, but that combination, when you get the gear right and the, 
the technique right and the attitude and the heart right. It's um, there's some killer players out there, man. It's really cool. This this is not a cheap hobby to have either if you want to do it right because I mean some of the amps that Jerry used are old and hard to find and super expensive. Thinking like the Macintosh. Yeah, you know that Mac that Jerry used. Um, that thing weighs 128 pounds, and it is way way too loud for any mortal. I mean, it's funny. I I talk to people about, you know, we're trying to illustrate just how loud Jerry was with that rig. And, um, it's pretty fun. You can go back and find, uh, I forget what it was. It was a Warfield show from the eighties. Um, and you can get this, find the soundboard and the audience recordings. And if you listen to the audience recording right out of the gate, you hear big fat Jerry. It sounds great. The whole room filled with Jerry guitar. But if you listen to the soundboard, you notice the first song or two, there is no Jerry in the mix, which tells us that he was he was so loud. The sound guy was uh, busy getting the band up and didn't feel the need to put Jerry in the PA yet. So, you know, I I wouldn't be lying if that if I said that didn't happen in my band from time to time. Yeah, well, it's the nature of that rig. It's the nature of that style. Um, but you know, for these guys trying to get that tone, it's a real trick and art to try to scale it down to something practical. You're not going to kill yourself and kill the band and kill the house. Um, you know, where Jerry might've been at times well over 300 Watts into those really loud JBL speakers. We got guys, you know, more practically trying to do that at, you know, 50 Watts and, uh, you know, playable guitar acceptable stage volumes, you know, and it's tricky, you know, it's tricky to find that sweet spot and everybody's band is different and everybody's style is different. Right. Right. Do they, uh, they come to you? Are you in touch with a lot of those people? Yeah. I have a ton of conversations, you know, I make some gear that works for them. There's other guys making gear. Um, so yeah, I'm part of that conversation. I like to share what I, you know, my opinions (laughs) and my thoughts on the matters when I can. Yeah. It's it's an interesting subculture, you know. I think it's just another testament to the power of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, man. I, it, seriously, it is. It kind of blew me away this year. This these young guys. I mean, teenagers and early twenties that are discovering it, and they're good guitar players already. And they're freaked out when they discover Jerry. They're like, oh my god, this is the greatest music on earth, and Jerry's just outrageous. And they want to learn it, and they want to get that sound. They want to learn the style and the approach and uh, it's a seriously fun hobby <laughs> and and like i said for a lot of guys it's a pro thing you know they're gigging on this stuff that's so great though keeping the vibe alive for us man well hey thank you for sharing your insight on that as always uh look forward to having you back next week uh, stay safe all right you too rob good talking to you yeah thanks brad Today's edition of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in, or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help. www.authenticity-academy.com My next interview was so much fun, it was really just hanging out and talking to an old friend. Uh, Jerry Saracini is the drummer from the Dallas, Texas-based band Forgotten Space, but we went to music school together and have known each other for over 30 years. He was also a drummer in a band here in St. Louis called Vitamin A, with my drumming partner Dino English in it, but he was actually a guitar player. 
Back then, little known fact, Dino was a guitar player in a band before he was a drummer. Uh, Jerry sat in with DSO numerous times, and it's always a blast. I must say that this is most definitely the edited version of this interview as we went on for a long time. Uh, If you'd like to hear the outtakes, please visit my subscriber site at www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays. So I am here with Jerry Saracini of Forgotten Space, a Grateful Dead cover band out of Dallas, Texas. How are you, my old friend? I'm doing great, Rob. Good to be with you, man. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, you are down there. You're in Dallas still. Uh, how are you doing? What's going on? How are you spending the uh, this crazy sucky time? So doing, I gotta say, doing well overall. Just you know, making it through like everyone else. Um, but um, I, I've used the time trying to get really focused about the band, actually, and you know, some other music projects too, but. It's funny. I've used I've used the time sort of reorganizing or organizing in, in the first, you know, <laughs> division. Many of the, many of the things that just help sort of the infrastructure for the band and online material. Just just getting ducks in a row in a lot of areas that I didn't always have time or or you know sort of the clear head to get to because of the other demands. So right. You know, and reanalyzation of the music as well has been interesting. It's been great to to have some time and space to do that as well. That's awesome. Let me uh, let me ask you for a brief history. Forgotten space, you guys, uh, you do very well. You're an awesome band. I've played with you. I've seen you. When and how did you guys get started? Oh man, it's funny you bring this up. I was just actually thinking about this uh, the other day because I was trying to figure out exactly how long the band <laughs> had been together. Um, I wasn't a part of it in the first two years. Actually, it was uh, it came together in two thousand five, and it was born sort of from a community of musicians that have a long history of playing Grateful Dead music in Dallas goes back to a thing that was known as the dead thing that was around even in the nineties and stuff, you know, while the Grateful Dead were still in existence. And, um, and out of this community, different combinations of musicians, you know, just developed relationships. And, but around 2005, it started to become at least in terms of this band, which was going to be called Forgotten Space, more just a set group of of people. And um, and I, what's funny is I, I was rehearsing with them for a good while, but never could do any of the gigs because I had other commitments. And so I didn't really start until 2007 myself. But, uh, but it, it, the band's been around that long and it started and it kind of started more as like we would play gigs maybe once a month at you know sort of the same venue for a couple years and then maybe move it to another venue and it was kind of like when everybody could do it and it was just it was a little bit more just about the the good fun of playing Grateful Dead music with friends tell me about when when you guys are playing the music uh do you take a specific approach to interpreting and performing the music? And I'm, I'm, when I ask it, I'm asking about you personally and as a band. You know, that's something that's also seemed to evolve 
based on, uh, you know, a, a few different factors. And the, the group as it was for a very long time, uh, where we had sort of a, a real accurate, you know, instrumentation, two drummers and, and, you know, it was a, a six piece We It's, it's funny. We could, I felt like we could take an approach where we had a good balance of being ourselves and like approaching it to be very accurate. But I, but it's funny as I stepped away from it, I could, I realized, Oh, there's, there's things that we do that aren't accurate to the arrangements perhaps, or, you know, like things start to bleed into your own kind of interpretation. And so when we, when some roles in the band change, for instance, when, when Kenny left to go do the new bows like full time and, and Hunter moved into the lead guitar situation and we brought, Scott Johnson in rhythm guitar, he lives in a different city. And that in itself created a different set of conditions for us to work from, which when we were a band prior to that, you know, we might not have a set list figured out until literally a couple hours before a show because we were all working. We had, you know, rehearsed so much, played so much that we could kind of operate like that, but now we tend to operate from a place of set lists or are well in advance, you know, weeks so that everyone has like personal time on their own to work on the material. And it it also helps us keep sort of a larger rotation of songs uh, happening. And, and so, you know, that's something that's, that's changed. Um, that also allowed us to go back and re-examine our interpretation of the songs in terms of, uh, in terms of like how accurate we were to arrangements or certain eras. And, you know, we, we, we don't like, un, unlike dark star orchestra, we don't, at least, you know, half the time what you're doing, we're, we don't pick like actual shows, but we, we kind of blend things, you know, we will have like different eras in the same show of different song. And right. we always kind of create our own set list. Um, much like, you know, when you guys are doing an, an elective set or whatever. Right. Tell me, tell us, tell the, the world out there about your Grateful Dead community down in Dallas. You know, I'm sure... It's it's not unlike a lot of the places around the country, but tell me a little bit about it. I'm sure you have people that you see at every show, that people have been there since day one. Um, give me a little insight into what, what it's like down there in Dallas. Man, I, I got to say, even <laughs> having been a part of the community as, as long as I have down here, I mean, going on 12, 15 years, whatever it is, in terms of being around the Grateful Dead community down here, I'm still amazed at how, how vibrant it is, um, how wide ranging in age it, it remains and, uh, just how strong of a community it is. We, they, they have given their themselves the name DFW deadheads and, uh, it's just it's it's man it's a it's a pretty 
close-knit, supportive community, certainly supportive of us, but supportive of each other as well. And it's, it's, I mean, it, it almost has a life and into <laughs> to itself, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. I, I living in St. Louis all those years and growing up with Jake's leg and it's like, you know, I knew there was a community there and yet I, I was kind of surprised when I came back with forgotten space, how strong that community was. And I, I think, I think people from around the country would be equally surprised. I don't think when people think deadheads, they would think Texas or Dallas would have like such a strong scene. If those songs weren't what they were, I don't think any of this, I I don't think any of it would, would be happening. You're, you're totally right. Songs. I agree, man. Well, my friend, it's always good to catch up with you. I miss you a lot. We don't get to see each other right now because of everything going on, but hopefully one day soon. I want to thank you very, very much for taking time out of your day to spend a few minutes with me. My absolute pleasure, Rob. Great to talk to you, and I look forward to seeing you in person again soon, too. Right on, pal. That is Jerry Saracini of the band Forgotten Space out of Dallas, Texas. If you like what you are hearing today, please head over to our subscriber site at www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays and consider a monthly subscription for access to bonus content including unedited interviews and outtakes, video features, some cool swag, and many other ways to further engage with me and support the podcast. My featured guest today is Ben Kaufman of Yonder Mountain String Band. For those of you who may not be familiar, Yonder Mountain String Band is a bluegrass band, but not in the traditional sense. Uh, One of the unique aspects of Yonder is that although they are a bluegrass band, they have an approach to jamming and improvisation that is straight out of the ethos of the Grateful Dead and have been mainstays on the jam band circuit for over 20 years now. Uh, We've spent uh, quite a bit of time together both on and off stage over the years, and they are a great group of guys and gals and uh, there aren't too many folks out there who are as nice and approachable as ben kaufman so sit back and enjoy my conversation with ben kaufman from the yonder mountain string band okay so i am here with ben kaufman of the yonder mountain string band how are you my friend i am doing well surviving these crazy times uh, to the best, best of my ability what, what what are you doing? First of all, you're out in Grass Valley, is that right? Yeah, um, out in uh, in uh, Nevada City, Grass Valley, same, kind of the same difference. And um, what are you what are you doing with yourself? Well, I have uh, I have become a, a homeschool teacher, <laughs> um, and otherwise, I'm just sort of uh, you know what am, what else am I doing? I uh, I'm trying to learn. Or I am learning how to play the alto saxophone. Uh, to the to the dismay of my house cat and my son (laughs) the reed instrument can be a little squeaky at first i I did get myself a a beginner's mouthpiece which does make a difference (laughs) i I inherited my father's horns and he was uh you know he's playing the instrument and the mouthpiece is just you know it's a professional's instrument and i am not a professional saxophone player at this point although i did finally i did make my debut recording for a yonder video that we've we do uh, once a week so that excellent was fun. Is, is it already out if i it's missed out. that one yeah you can see it we did uh 
rainy day women, the Dylan tune. And so, you know, simple, simple line on the horn, but I learned it. That's awesome. I saw a bunch of videos. I think, uh, one of them, uh, one of them was a dead song. What was it? Um, uh, what did we I do? You just did it recently. You guys are all standing outside around some trees. Yeah. It, it, we did, uh, Candyman. Yes, that's right. Candyman. Where were all, where, where'd you record all of those? That was at a, this is going to sound ridiculous, but at a Pennsylvania winery. And then like, sound ridiculous. but I, you would think, I'm not sure that Pennsylvania wine. Oh, you know, right, right, I, right. right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that it appeals to the, you know, the cognoscenti of, uh, of uh, the world, but anyway, yeah, they, have, it's a thing. We have Missouri wineries too. I don't know how renowned they are. Um, you and I have known each other now. God, this makes me feel old. We've known each other almost 20 years. Yeah, I and believe we met, it. We met on the Jamgrass tour. That was all the way back in the day. That was 2002, I think. And for those of you who didn't get to see this tour, it was actually an amazing lineup. It was Dark Star Orchestra. And then Yonder, and then the John Cowan Band, Peter Rowan and Tony Rice, the Sam Bush Band, and the David Grisman Quintet. And it was an all-day affair. And for us, that was a, that was like a big thing for us because that was our first tour like on a bus. Yeah. And it was our first time like playing Alpine and Deer Creek and, and, and the big sheds. Yeah, and, it was amazing. And uh, and getting to meet and getting to meet a lot of friends who are still like you guys who are, that's where we met and we're all still friends today. So uh, it wasn't the most successful tour in the world, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a big dream, you know, uh, and worth a shot. Trying to to see just how big an effect the uh, the Oh Brother Where Art Thou thing had. Yeah, you know? see how far it trickled down. But going back even before that, you were born. I read you were born in Pittsburgh. Is that right? Yeah, born in Pittsburgh. Inherited uh, my parents' football team. Did you grow up there? No, they moved. I was about eighteen months old when uh, <clears throat> they moved. Dad, Dad needed a. Dad was a musician. <clears throat> then he needed to get a real job, you know, um, especially with a kid. So they he he they moved to uh, Massachusetts, and he got a job uh, with a computer company computer engineer did he keep playing music during all that oh yeah so yeah he had a he ended up um conducting and occasionally playing horn woodwinds in a a big band in boston for 25 years wow so obviously you're coming from a musical family uh you started young were you did you start like with piano or anything like that how did you get started as a musician uh, for for uh, playing, yeah, they I had to take piano lessons, which uh, you know, a series of different teachers, um, you know, some some great and some not. Um, always, you know, every Wednesday was Dad's rehearsal with his band. So I was before I could talk, you know, I was they'd they'd park me, you know, in the rhythm section and let me just sort of listen to the sound of a of a big band, you know, playing that music, which is really cool. After piano, did you move straight to bass? I did. Yeah the uh, the um, we were in. Let's see, that's just going to ring in the background until it stops. Um, I was in a junior high band, and they uh, the music teacher who I'm still friends with. Uh, his name is Don Moltrop, and he sat my father. He took my father aside. You know, musicians speak to each other in very musiciany ways. 
right. um, you know, and he sat my, uh, he took my father aside and he said, yeah, you know, your, your son, he's an acceptable piano player, but he's not a piano player. He's a bassist. And the, and my father's like, really? Oh, really? And he's like, just trust me on this, you know, get your son, your son is fine on the piano, but he's actually should be playing the bass, get him a bass. And this is coming from a, you know, a music teacher who was a bass player himself. But um, it's just an interesting observation for someone to make, knowing me only as a piano player, and then to just make this sort of have this understanding. And so my dad went out and bought me a, you know, a $75 three quarter size electric bass. And I'll be damned. Wasn't he, wasn't he right? You, you took know? to it right away. I took to it right away. And it's, it's even, you know, it, even as I look back on it or think about, you know, the instruments that we sort of uh, explore in our lives, I, I, he's right. I'm a bass player. I don't know. And I have these, this, you know, greater under, idea of what it is to be a bass player. Um, you know, in terms of sort of the spirit of the thing. Um, but Do you yeah, still have right. it? But no, I wish. I mean, it was, a, you know, it was a piece of crap. But, but you I still wish. wish you had it. Yeah, just nostalgia. Nostalgia will fill the closets, won't it? Yes, it will. Come to my <laughs> house, man. <laughs> um, so, okay, so we met in 2002. Yonder formed 98, 99, 98. 98, yeah, in the uh, summer. Before that, had you started playing and bass in other bands first? Oh, yeah. What yeah, kind of stuff? I was all, I mean, when I was growing up, it was sort of like classic rock covers. So we'd be, we'd play like the school dances and, uh, um, and, uh, parties. And that was always fun, you know? Um, and then, uh, once we, when I moved, I actually ended up quitting, you know, stopping playing music for a while after a sort of a, a personal tragedy and my guru, the, the, you know, the teacher, basically my, you know, my guru, uh, he got, he died in a, in a gig at a gig Ooh. and it wasn't even supposed to be his gig. He was just picking up a, you know, picking up the bass gig for a friend and getting, uh, he ended up dying at the gig. And so when I heard that, my parents had obviously told me that and I'm just like, that's, I couldn't square it. I'm like, this is too fucked up and music is, you know, associated music with pain. And I'm like, well, so I'm not going to do music anymore. So, but I still felt like a creative person. So what, what was I going to do? I decided to try my hand at film school. So I ended up moving to New York city and going to film school there for a couple of years, um, which was immediately apparent that that was not the right thing for me. Um, just people, I, what I realized was all these people in this film school, they felt about film the way that I felt about music, you know, and it was just, it took me hanging around him for me to realize. So I had my electric bass, I brought my electric bass back to the city, started playing in bands there. That was still like the, the pay to play sort right. of, you know, era. Um, Is this like the mid nineties? Is that when this would be? This would have been 93, 94. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so then, um, but that all, all the while I'm like, I got to get out of New York city. It was not just, even now I can visit it and I like perform, I like playing there, but I couldn't live there. Uh, God, ever. no, no. And, I and, and so I, anyway, I, I'm like, I'm like, well, I need to figure out a place to be. I don't know what I want to do. I just need to find a place where I can go and be happy. And, <clears throat> and it was Boulder. So, 
when you go up there and when you get out there, have, have, have you heard the Grateful Dead at this point in your life? Oh, yeah. Do you remember when you first heard the dead? Well, the very first time I ever heard the dead was in sixth grade. Um, when the, the older guys, you know, we were, like I said, I had a band back then and, um, and they came over for band practice and, and the one guy gave me a cassette tape and he said, here, check this out. It's awesome. And it was the, the, the cassette tape of Dylan and the dead. Yeah. And I listened to it and hated it. Like <laughs> I hated it. I thought I'm like, this is like, nothing's in tune. It's, uh, it is like, I don't understand because like, I'd heard of the Grateful Dead and right. knew they were a big thing. And I just, I'm like, this is what this is. I just thought because I was listening, the music I was listening to at the time was, you know, you kind of get an idea of what Guns N' Roses is when you're listening to Sweet Child of Mine, or you can get an idea of what, you know, that all of that music at the time, if you hear the record, you kind of get an idea of what you're going to go see. If you right. go see the show, it's, and it's gonna, they're going to play the song. The way that you're like you're gonna go see ACDC, you're gonna hear Back in Black, and it's gonna go pretty much like the record goes, or Rush, right. or whatever. You're gonna see the so that was my concept of of a um, you know of popular music or electric music. Um, I didn't understand that you would have elements of improvisation, or that the thing would change from night to night, or you'd have good shows and bad shows. You know what I mean? Anyway, right. so they, he hands me this cassette tape, and I I listened to it once and put it in the drawer and never listened to it again. And I'm like, well, I don't like the Grateful Dead. And then it was years later when I was um, I forget why, but I ended up listening to the some of the acoustic sets that they right. did. Sure. And I'm like, I love this. And then, uh, oh, it, was, it must have been because I, I start. I'm sure I started to listen to Olden in the Way before I just went back and you know traced it back. Right when you're getting um, into the bluegrass thing for the first time and starting to do your research, I guess. Yeah, and then I started to pull out you know the the the, the albums and get some bootlegs and stuff. I had a, a great um, tape trading friend when I lived in New York City, and he'd always give me really cool stuff. And so I just started to listen to the Grateful Dead, and I went, "Oh man, I I love the Grateful Dead." <laughs> I don't know why I thought I hated the Grateful Dead, but I love them. What was it that grabbed you? What 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 made you? I mean, I can understand with the Dylan and the Dead, and you're younger, why you might not not have liked it. When you start listening again and you're reintroduced to it, what was it that grabbed you this time that said made you say, "Oh man, this is the shit." The songs, the songs, yeah, the songs, lyrics, lyrics, the the chord progressions. Um, uh, Jerry's voice, uh, his voice with his, with his, you know, his voice voice, but also his voice through his instrument. Yeah. Um, that was something that's just once, you know, obviously there's a reason why I think he's so revered, but you know, once I started to understand that a little bit more and just on, you know, became, became more increasingly obvious that this was a special group and a special time. And then, you know, as I continued my own career, realizing that it's sort of the the foundation upon which everything that we do is built. Right. And so then, you know, even, you know, bluegrass, you know, even our weird version of bluegrass, what we do, it's like so much of it is dependent on the Grateful Dead being a thing. But anyway, I was listening to their music and listening to the old and the way stuff and then the acoustic sets. 
and then the songs, and then just started to get turned on to different eras of the Grateful Dead and finding myself, you know, liking certain things versus, you know, or preferring certain times to others and realizing that, you know, there was no way I was ever going to get a chance to see the, you know, that era of the Grateful Dead, you know, right. failing a Did, time machine. You know, there's obviously, there's a lot of country and Americana and bluegrass style stuff that they did. I mean, they're such a chameleon. They covered everything. Did the other stuff appeal to you just as much? You know, the rock and roll stuff, the psychedelic stuff, the more jazz based stuff? Um, not, not initially. Uh, I, the, the first, what was the, uh, oh, what's the name of that record? The, Reckoning? No, I, I reckoning I had that. I loved that record for sure. But the one, it's it's a classic live record that they're introduced. At, I think they're at the Great American Music Hall. And oh, two from the vault. Oh, one yeah, from the vault. Yeah, that was the one that I, where that was the first like real connection I made to a uh, to a live dead recording. That's, that's a good one. I mean, that's yeah. I talked about that last week with someone else. Oh, with Vinny from Mo, with Vinny Amico about what a great album that was, you know, especially for a live recording and the songs they're playing on that are so complicated. Yeah. And they did such a good job. Right. Exactly. It was, yeah, they nailed it. What about, uh, uh, go ahead, go ahead, please. No, that's it. That was, I'm just sort of smiling, thinking back to that experience of, of hearing that for the first time. That's awesome. Uh, what about the other guys in yonder? Were they fans of the dead? Oh yeah. Yeah. Big time. Um, all for you. I'm, I'm going yeah. back to when Jeff was was around, but yeah, Jeff was a huge, uh, huge, huge, huge fan of the Grateful Dead. Saw him a bunch. Um, Adam too, Dave too, Dave as well. Um, Adam and Dave, you know, had the balance, the Grateful Dead side of them, but also a punk rock um, side to them. That so they're they're the two sides of their musical coins are Grateful Dead and punk rock, whereas Jeff's two sides of Jeff's musical coin were the Grateful Dead and musical theater, which I think you could, you could tell, you know, when you watched him play that he had that performance, uh, you know, aspect to his personality too, but but they loved the Grateful Dead. Um, Well, that, that translates, you know, that translates over then to, to, to where you guys ended up in the jam band world, you know, in in the bluegrass world, you guys would definitely be considered, you know, progressive, in the sense, you know, you guys improvise heavily and you take the jams to places that a traditional bluegrass band probably wouldn't. Yeah, um, especially yeah. back in, back in the day when we were first starting out, you know, we'd find ourselves either at the the jam band festivals where we were the only example of bluegrass at those things or at the bluegrass festival where people would be like, what the fuck are you guys doing? You know, like, and we're coming up at the exact same time as Nickel Creek and just, you know, like these golden children over there and us being like, you know, black sheep of the family, where are we going to sneak? We got to find a place to smoke some pot. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Totally not bluegrass. Um, So whether it was consciously or subconsciously, what, what jam at, you know, aspects of the jam from the Grateful Dead world went to the stage with you. I mean, did you consciously talk about how we're going to take this out and how we're going to jam, how we might change the feel or how we might segue from one tune to another, or did that just kind of all happen naturally because you were all fans of the Grateful Dead? It just kind of happened naturally. It it didn't happen right away. Um, We were playing songs. You know, we honestly, we thought we wanted to be 
a bluegrass band, whatever our concept of that was, you know? And so we were just playing songs and then we ended up having a couple or, or I, you know, I, re- I remember I wrote this song traffic jam, which is as simple a song as you could get, but I'm like, you know what, then we need to, let's make it a, like a bigger thing. Like it's, it could be two and a half minutes, but let's, let's have it be a thing. And it's a good chance to have, you know, friends come and sit in as well. Cause all the, a lot of the yonder material for the songs, they're really, they're actually pretty complicated in terms of their chord. It's not like jam friendly, you know? Right. And so we wanted to have some jam friendly songs that weren't covers. And so then, you know, and then, so that sort of morphs from, you know, so you have this thing, it can be a jam, but even then it was still just like, we're going to have a bunch of friends and we're all just going to trade solos over the same chord progression, which is not, you know, it's, it's heading in the right direction for jamming, but it's not actually jamming. And then I forget when it happened where we just all, we jumped off the cliff, you know, in terms of jamming. I want to say it was sort of by ne- sort of a, a not necessity, but a, a, a happy uh, accident. If my memory serves, we were playing in San Francisco, or it could have been Santa Cruz. I, I, I want to say it was California, though. And the PA system was a piece of crap. And whenever you'd whenever you'd touch like a a cable or put your foot in a certain spot on stage, there would be this percussive sound going through the PA system, which Jeff just started to use in the, in the song. And then the whole thing just took a left turn. And then, and we broke out of the, of the bluegrass beat. And we were just, it was pure improvisation at that point of a totally different style, you know, maybe even, you know, out of tempo, uh, just, you know, wide open, improvisation and then after the show i remember we all looked at each other and we're like oh man we can do that like that's something that that you can do the you know, aha moment yeah i thought you know we don't hopefully we're not encountering you know broken pa systems as the motivation for the for the jamming but like we can do that and that's something that was really it was really fun like we all had a great time at that show and it felt like there was something new happening or that something new happened to us and from that point we just always had spots in the show and kept writing songs where you could have those moments or that would lend themselves to those moments. Um, but it wasn't ever sort of, it wasn't until that point where we, you know, could, we just conceptualized it. And, um, but it wasn't, you know, even then we never had a, uh, we never had discussions on how to, to jam. We just would regularly jump off the cliff and hope, you know, hope the parachute open. I want to take a take a little turn here and go to let's talk about the songs and songwriting for a second. By my count, you guys have put out like ten albums somewhere around there. Yep, and some of them, quite a few of them, actually have done really well on the bluegrass and the country charts on the Billboard charts. With all that material you guys have written over the years, uh, did the work of Hunter and Barlow influence you at all lyrically? And you know, did them or or even just the the work of the, of the boys. And the music, you know, chord changes, feels. But more specifically, I wanted to ask about the lyrics. I think that um, I don't know how much, you know, I, I don't know that I could identify the, you know, the the progression of or the, you know, the the, the lineage. You know, I'm sure that they that the the songwriting and the lyrics had an impact um, on us because just 
of how deeply we were listening to um, that music. And um, so it sort of like rubs off or it's osmosis, you know? Right. Um, and I know that uh, we, we only got a chance to meet Barlow a couple of times, but that was, that meeting was a powerful um, meeting, hanging out, and especially for Dave, um, where I, I got, you know, I, I had a pretty clear, in terms of writers, you know, they had a connection and spent, you know, stayed up way past everyone's bedtime talking about, you know, or just not even talking about, just sort of riffing and being in each other's presence. And that was pretty special to see. Um, in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the lyrics, you know, the, some of the, some of those songs are borrowed from, you know, the, the folk or bluegrass tradition of the story songs, you know, right. where you're, you're telling a, a story. Uh, and, um, and I can see that, you know, that progression, um, you know, even like friend of the devil, you know, that's a, that's a story song. And I, I understand where those come from. Um, and then, uh, so it, but in terms of like sitting down, I, I never sat down and went like, I like, you know, this particular Robert Hunter, you know, set of lyrics and I'm going to, you know, copy it in my own way. It was right. more, it was more just the, the, when you're, when you're living in the, an environment where that's, you know, an, always a present where that, where their presence is sort of always there, you're influenced by it in ways that maybe other people would be better at identifying in you than you could identify in yourself. Um, yeah, that makes, that makes, would that go, would that ethos transfer over also to the musical side, you know, your chord, your chord changes, your chord structure, your voicings, kind of the same thing by osmosis it's there but not consciously it, yeah it's it, it especially is is uh for me it's it though that kind of um impact comes when i'm learning actual like transcribing the songs or parts mm-hmm. so like sitting down and actually transcribing phil lesh's bass parts it's pretty that can be a challenge because <laughs> he's not playing the bass in a way that's particularly like uh, traditionally, or that's traditionally bassy, right. you know, like he's doing, he's playing it in a, in a, in a very unique way. And so that to transcribe his parts can be really can be a challenge because it's not intuitive um, necessarily, at least for my approach to the bass. But then by doing it, you learn, you're like, Oh man, like, look at what he's doing here. I didn't know you could do that. Right. Uh, I, you know. and, and for you, I would imagine well, you know, in, in, in bluegrass, the bass has a really specific role and, yeah. and you're, you're playing a lot of, a lot of downbeat, a lot of one and three. And, and traditionally you're sticking to a lot of the root and the fifth, Yep. Um, which is completely contrary to what he does. Yeah. And you can get away with it though. I think when you have, you know, a, when you're playing with, you know, a rhythm section like that, you know, he's, he, he wasn't required to, you know, keep it together. So do you keep that kind of mindset to an extent anyway when when you guys are taking a jam out where you can say I can get off of the one and I can get off of the three and I maybe don't play the one for a while and, and, and take it out in a little bit more of a, uh, for lack of a better term, a little more of a fill-influenced direction? I, that's when that can happen. Otherwise, you know, my, my I, I'm, 
I have a strong um, connection to the responsibility of my role in, you know, in the music, um, bluegrass, you know, or, or yonder's, you know, interpretation of bluegrass music. And most of the time, for me to do my job, the only way that the thing works is if I'm doing my job correctly, playing in the spirit of what I'm supposed to do, which is not not to be overly noty or complicated. And that allows everyone else to have a very safe, trustworthy platform to explore from. Um, but then when you go into the jams, that's when you can jump off. And I've, I love the, I, I love like pulling the rug out, you know, and like doing anything but what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, that's when that's fun. And then you get into that weird, that listening experience where everybody's do you know, everyone has to listen to each other in such a way that's also sort of like you're, you're, you're looking into the future or listening into the future too, to see where your bandmates might be going by the things they're suggesting now with the music, with what they're playing. It, it's, that's the, yeah, those are, that's fun. You're living on the edge, playing without a net, whatever you want to call it, just taking the chance. Jump, you, I think you called it jumping off the cliff. Yep. Yeah, man. Who, uh, besides Phil, and who were some of your other influences on bass growing up, before you got into bluegrass, after you got into the bluegrass, just generally speaking? Um, well, my uh, bass influences were the, I, me- I mentioned briefly the, um, I don't know if we were on recording at that point, but I had a mentor growing up. You know, you navigate through piano teachers and whatever, however you're getting to where you're going. And my father found a, a musician friend who uh, was had gone to New England Conservatory of Music. He was a, a piano player and a bass, uh, a bassist and a composer, but also you know had a day job. Um, and so I ended up um, connecting with him for a number of years. Uh, and he was my first real influence. His name was Kim Kimball Stickney and, uh, was, you know, my memory of him is very, um, is very rich. And he was, you know, he, he guided me for sure on the path of, you know, not just like, Hey, this is, here's a way, here's a technique on the bass, or this is a way to play the piano, but more like, so you think you want to be a musician, huh? And this is what it looks like. You got to have a day job and you're going to be gigging on days when your family maybe would rather you be home. And, you know, and you're going to, because music is a part of your life and you can't, you know, if it's really a part of your life, you're not going to be able to deny it. You know, you just have to find a way to make it fit. Um, So he was my first influence. And then when I started to, you know, I just, by the nature of where, you know, where and when I grew up, I was playing, you know, learning electric bass in the 80s, in the mid 80s and mid to late 80s. And so popular music at that time, you know, was not the not the best, although I have (laughs) I have nostalgia for it now. I can find gems, but I'm I'm in the same boat, man, product of the 80s. So I was listening to, you know, uh, hair, hair, you know, glam rock and, you know, the hair bands and that would become um that would become grunge but uh but i was i was listening to um this uh this bass player billy sheehan who was ended up in uh, david lee roth's band after van halen broke up yeah and um he's you know he's this classic sort of shreddy 
you know, tapping the instrument and playing super fast and you had distortion on the bass and uh, was kind of a wild guy. Um, and, you know, one of these guys that has been voted best bass player of the year for Bass Player Magazine so many times that you can't vote for him anymore. Right. <laughs> this guy. Um and so I, I started to, and, but back in the, you know, this was also, bef- you know, we were, I was listening to cassette tapes and a lot of what he was doing was, uh, you know, unapproachable at, at speed, at real speed. You know, I, I'm like, how am I going to learn this? And so I ended up uh, getting, borrowing my dad's old reel to reel recorder and being able to, just like they would do back in the day with records, you could just, with the weight of your hand, you could slow the, the speed that the record was spinning. And, right. and tr- slow it down so you could transcribe the notes or hear the the intervals. Anyway, so I did some some of that, and and then I moved. Uh, you know, I quit music for a while um, after my the teacher I was mentioning. He he died a kind of a tragic accident, and I just needed to do something other than music for a while. So I went to film school, and then um, but while I was in film school, I started to uh, get um, hip to what I consider to be like a, you know really really good music again and um and kind of let go of the the shreddy hair band stuff and found my way into jam band scene you know i remember seeing mo way back in the day at the wetlands and uh leftover salmon and you know colonel bruce and uh you you were in new york at just the right time for all of that oh it was incredible that was the best part taken off yeah that was the best part of being there you know, getting, you know, I don't know how you hear about this, but like blues travelers doing a pop-up show at, you know, Nightingale's and going down to wait in line to get the, you know, one of 50 tickets to go see that show. And, uh, you know, getting to see, uh, I saw Dave Matthews band at Irving Plaza right before they blew up and, um, you know, Mo and salmon. And that was the, that was the thing that changed me. But anyway, as far as bass players go, I, my uh, dad had given me a, copy of the first Flectones record. Um, and when I first put it on, I, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. It was beyond my pay grade. Um, and then I busted it out again after, you know, I started to get into the jam band world and I'm like, Oh my, like, this is one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. And also what, well, like, who is this bass player and what, like what? And so I got to go see them and you know, seeing Victor Wooten do his thing would you know that would be inspired. That's just by nature, all of those guys. But yeah. that's just the, one of the most inspiring things. The first time I saw Victor Wooten do his thing, I'm like, this is you know, if I was looking for inspiration, there it is. Found it. Yep, found it. For me, that was I had that kind of moment the first time I saw Fish. Um, you know, I was probably 22, 23 years old. I think it was 90, 1993, but I had never seen anybody play like that before and just kind of walked out of the show with my jaw kind of dropped. Yep. Again, I'm way above my pay grade at that point. Yeah. And definitely inspired me to try something and, and learn something new for sure. Um, yonder, getting back to the band, you guys play dead songs, a few of them here and there. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've even had the pleasure of playing a pickle barrel on one with you yeah is uh, that we in in arizona on a, on a bucket with really warped drumsticks that we found in the corner of the room yeah uh, i think that was shakedown street i think yep um what what which dead songs have you guys messed around with and do you, do you kind of try and stay away from the quote-unquote country tunes um 
for a while we for for a while we may uh how do I put this um we've gone back and forth uh with the idea of the playing you know everybody plays grateful dead songs right and so how so is it okay to play grateful dead music or is it pandering or is it you know this was a con- these were conversations we were having ages ago um and uh until we sort of just gave up that whole storyline because and played music that we wanted to play. And a lot of the Grateful Dead stuff is so good. There's a reason why people want to hear it all the time. Right. Um, so yeah, we've, we've explored a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, we, we definitely, the e, the low hanging fruit is the country, more country uh, influenced Grateful Dead music. Um, right. But, uh, but that's by no means the only you know, you can, any Grateful Dead tune is fair game, you know? So, uh, I've, my favorite one that we've ever played is probably, I really like, uh, Mississippi half step. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, now, do you take those when you take those ones that aren't necessarily the, the two beat country thing and you play those, do you put that two beat bluegrass spin on them or do you play them kind of more towards the original form? How do you guys handle those? How do you interpret it? Yeah, probably staying more to the original form. I, I, it can be, you know, I just have a personal dislike for taking a, uh, you know, a, a song, a classic song or whatever, and then making it bluegrassy, sort of forcing that, that uh, two beat um, feel on it. I think it can end up sounding really cheesy. Yeah. No, that this, no, we've, we are guilty of this, you know in our own performances, sometimes we've taken, you know, songs and made bluegrass songs out of them, but we really try to avoid, we, we have a very sensitive, uh, cheesy factor test. Like our, we have our, our, our sensitivity to the, to, to cheesiness is, is, is high. And so nothing, you know, if it even begins to feel that way, someone will raise their hand and be like, no, you know, no. So if, if one person says no to you, you go with that. Yeah, that for sure. For sure. Team. Yeah. And it's, it's also too, yeah, I mean, it's not like, but, but people aren't just going to say no for no reason, you know? Right. And it's not like, I mean, you can have a discussion. You can always try to sell your, you know, if you really believe in something, you could, yonder's a, you know, a democracy, um, sometimes to our, you know, detriment, but, um, well, I mean, everybody yeah, you know, if everybody gets an opinion, sometimes it can. Sometimes nothing gets done. You go in circles for hours or days yeah. or months. Or, yeah, been there. Yeah, but so anyway, but but generally, you know, people are. If someone's really like, you know, if their if their radar is activating, there's a reason. Anyway, um, so if if we're gonna do a dead tune, for example, and it's not one that would just, you know, where you can play bluegrass to it and it makes sense you know, um, Cumberland blues would pops into mind, right? right? That's, that's one where it's just a very easy to translate that into a bluegrass thing and have it not sound cheesy. Right. Um, but if you're going to do something else, you, you know, I don't, I, we would, we would definitely perform it more in the feel that the dead would do it rather than bluegrassifying it. Right. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, one of the times maybe here when I played with you, I think we did Shakedown Street, and you switched over to electric. Yeah, and got, and got off the upright for that one. Anytime um, I get a chance to play the electric when it's appropriate, you know. Um, see, I don't think up to that point I had ever seen you play electric. It kind of was out of left field for me. 
And you said, yeah, I'm trying to play it more and more these days, you know, bring it in because I love it so much. Yeah, it's my, you know, I, that was the first instrument I got to play other than piano, electric right. bass, you know, sideways bass. <laughs> and, um, sideways bass. And, uh, and I love it. It's just, Shalom. you know, if I had, if I had been, you know, I kind of wish that, well, I don't know. I had to, I had to play the upright a lot for just to get myself, you know, competent on it. But I love the electric bass. So and, when you're home, yeah. if you pick up an axe, which one do you pick up? Oh, the upright. The upright. Yeah. It's just, you know, the, the uh, there's so much in, uh, it requires so much playing to even remotely keep your tech, your, you know, muscle, your muscles and your calluses together. Um, it's, you know, to let it go for too long. Um, it can be rough uh, picking it, starting up again. So, sure. so the upright, I just have it out, you know, out in the stand and it's there. So, and it's fine. I don't know. I've been getting into other like different sort of ear transcription exercises and really trying to go back and learn some of the, some, um, you know, classic jazz tunes, listening to the classic bass players and learning more about what they did and their style and just sort of increasing my comp- competency on the instrument. And we certainly have the time to do it right now. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. All right, man. Well, before I let you go, and I want to thank you for taking the time today and being with us. But before I let you go, uh, we're going to play a quick lightning round. No time to think. Just answer. Okay. All right. Uh, Studio recordings or live recordings? Oh, studio recordings. Favorite dead album? Uh, American Beauty. Favorite non-dead album? Gosh. Uh, Everybody uh, gets pissed at me with this question. Uh, uh, <laughs> kind of blue, Miles Davis. Favorite color? Blue. Favorite, first job? Uh, gre- uh, worked in a greeting card and uh, knickknacks shop. <laughs> uh, favorite venue to play? Red Rocks. Best city for a day off. Oh man. It's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. Uh yeah. Boulder, Colorado. First car. Uh Ford Escort GT with pink and blue uh ground effects racing stripes. As long as it's the GT, man. Mine wasn't, and I felt really kind of cheap because I didn't have the GT. It was a uh, it, it was not a it was not a terrible car. I, I rocked that car until it quit. So I I Went to a lot of dead shows in a Ford Escort myself. Yep. Uh, current car? Uh, Toyota Tacoma. Book you are reading? I am reading the uh, second book in the Magicians series by Lev Grossman. Do you have any magazine subscriptions? I don't. I was subscribed to the Highlights. Remember that kids magazine? We still get that and the junior version, High yep. Five, for the little boys. That's right. So, they But I... It's I let that uh, subscription uh, run out. I might renew it. My nine-year-old still loves it. Yeah. Emerus, Emerus will still dig it. My nine-year-old loves it, and the four-year-old loves the, the high five, which is a junior version. I might I might go uh, Ranger Rick here soon. We get that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> the joys of having nine-year-olds. I know. It. And uh, the first trip you will take when all this is over. Uh, visit my mom in Charleston, South Carolina. When's the last time you were able to see her? We, uh, a couple months ago, we, we had that brief window of uh, warm weather 
And, oh, you uh, played down there, didn't you? And so we played there. Um, what didn't get the, you know, couldn't see her without a, a mask, you know, socially distant. So couldn't, right. couldn't really give her a hug, but, right. um, but I still got to be in the same space, which was nice, but I want Emerus to, you know, we're going to go visit grandma Sandy and, and her boyfriend, and we're going to go out. He builds uh, wooden boats and he's going to take us out fishing and looking oh, for man. shark's teeth and sand dollars and just, That's you know, awesome. as soon as I we love- can. I love Charleston. That actually, my answer for best city for a day off is Charleston. I could see. I mean, you know, I, if I could go back in time and change my answer, that I might. But it's, I love it there. Yeah. All right, my friend. Well, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. And it's, it's first of all, it's just good to talk to you. It's been too long. I know. It's good to talk to you too, Rob. And uh, thank you for taking the time to give me some of your insights. And uh, please stay safe. And uh, hopefully, we'll see each other on the road very soon. I hope so. All right, that's Ben Kaufman from the Yonder Mountain String Band. Thanks again, pal. Thanks, Rob. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. I would like to thank Ben Kaufman and Jerry Saracini for taking the time to be here, and I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, and the Authenticity Academy for all of their support. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. He's doing some really cool stuff, and we should be releasing a bunch of it very soon. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. I'd like to make one last reminder to head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays and become a subscriber to the music plays the band podcast. We have a few different subscription levels and a lot of fun things going on as companion content to each episode. I'll be back again in two weeks with episode six featuring Aaron Magner of the disco biscuits until then stay safe, stay healthy and please stay vigilant. We need to get live music back out there as quickly as possible, and we need everyone's help in making that happen. Thanks for being here. People joining hand in hand while the music plays the band. Look, they're setting us on fire. Crazy who's to go in midnight. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.